I want to start this morning by contrasting something that we probably all have experienced in what we've seen. If this summer you are intending to change out your driveway or replace it with new concrete, you will have the people come out and the concrete be poured and, of course, all the appropriate structures be put in place, all the elements to, to, uh, to ensure that that driveway is level and stabilized in the right ways, and then the, the uh, people who have done the concrete will leave it. And the sun will beat down on the concrete, and what will that concrete do? It will become very hard. It will cure. And yet, if this summer you were to take a piece of wax, a candle, and you were to place that candle out in the baking sun, what would happen to the wax? It would soften and it would melt. Now, is there anything different in the sun that caused concrete to harden and wax to soften? Was it the sun, some peculiar work on, it shined its light differently on the concrete than it did on the wax? No. It was something in the substance itself, the concrete that caused it to harden and the wax that caused it to soften. And I start with that Example, because we see here in Mark chapter 3, as we continue to work through the book of Mark together, we see examples of, on the one hand, Jesus coming and performing these dramatic miracles, presenting profound spiritual truths, shining light, God's light, on the society and culture and even religious practices around him. And some people softened. They heard Jesus' words and saw what he did and their hearts melted and they said, he's the one. They knew it. But the tragic corollary is that others saw the same works. They heard the same words they experienced the same kind of light and their response was like concrete to harden until it could never soften again. The Pharisees are characterized here in Mark chapter 3 as having hard hearts. Now I can tell you from a medical perspective, I'm no doctor, but you don't want a hard heart arteriosclerosis is a killer. When your arteries around your heart begin to clog and harden, you ultimately are in grave physical danger. And I think it might go without saying this morning that if you suffer spiritual arteriosclerosis, if your heart is hardening spiritually, you are in grave danger before God. 
as I looked at this passage here again, just as we move through the book of Mark together, I was struck not just by the focus on what Jesus did, how he healed another man who was in need, but ultimately the theme that comes out of these six verses is Jesus confronting hardened hearts and how those hearts responded to him. Now, sometimes accusations of being Pharisees are thrown around to people or to churches that simply try to follow what the Bible says and apply the word of God carefully. And yet there are times where we have to understand that being a Pharisee comes easily to all of us. Being a Pharisee with a hardened heart is something that is prone to all of us as human beings because it is symptomatic, it is characteristic of some of the things that are so easy for all of us to fall into. And so this morning, I want to encourage us as soberly as I can, not just to look at this as a symptom or a characteristic of those Pharisees 2,000 years ago with little application to us today, but I ask all of us to searchingly uh, 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 look at our hearts, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, is there a hard heart in any way in me? The title of the message this morning is Hard Hearts, Closed Minds. Hard Hearts, Closed Minds. And we're going to start by looking, first of all, at the character of the Pharisees' hard hearts. And I think we'll find some, some symptoms of hard hearts that we might see in certain ways in our own lives. How did the Pharisees have hard hearts? And what ways might we see that same kind of hardness in ourselves? Well, let's start with this story here. Let's understand what is going on. You remember Mark chapter 1 is focused on introducing us to the king. The herald, the good news has gone out. God in the flesh has arrived. The king is here and the kingdom of God is at hand and Mark wants to introduce us to who this king is and what he is like, what his heart is, what his character is. Mark chapter two, as Jesus has been introduced to us, now we see conflict arising. We see the Pharisees begin opposing him. They saw themselves as the gatekeepers of God's truth. And now there's someone new in town. There's a stranger. There's an interloper. And they are saying, whoa, wait a second. Who is this person who is presenting himself as king? And we see these confrontations, these conflicts it, um, continue to grow until here in Mark chapter 3, we see the explosion it reaches a climax. Now you remember last week we looked at the Sabbath day. And you remember that Jesus and his disciples were going through the grain fields, whether barley or wheat, and they were hungry. And so they just plucked a little bit of wheat by the path or grain, and they, they brought the kernels out, they ate them. And immediately it's like the Pharisees just pop up from the middle of the grain fields. Aha! I got you! You were working on the Sabbath. You are violating the Sabbath because you're not supposed to, to reap on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to thresh and harvest on the Sabbath. 
You're not supposed to be preparing meals like this on the Sabbath. You are violators. And Jesus, of course, says to them, are you nuts? That's in the Greek there. That's in the Greek, I think. He says, number one, have you not read what David did? When David went and did what was technically unlawful, he was hungry, he was in need, he was starving, and he took bread that was lawful only for the priest to eat, and he ate it, he violated the law, but Jesus is saying it wasn't a violation of the law. Why? Because moral necessity was what made what was otherwise technically unlawful not unlawful. It was right for David to take that bread in necessity. Moral obligation trumps ceremonial requirements or technicalities. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who is at the center of all of God's work in this world. I am at the head of even the ceremonial observances of the Old Testament and God's covenant signs indeed because Jesus fulfilled those in himself. They were blinded to that. They were not pleased. We'll now come to verse 1 of chapter 3. And it says, And he, Jesus, entered again into the synagogue. Now, on what day would he have entered into the synagogue? On the Sabbath. It may even have been the next Sabbath. So this already would have been fresh in these Jewish people's minds. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. Now, we don't get a whole lot else other than Luke tells us it was his right hand. His hand was shriveled. And whether that was from birth or whether that was from some accident or deformity or disease after that fact, we don't know. All we know is that his right hand was worthless. And in an agricultural society in which people worked with their hands, if your right hand is deformed, you've got problems. This was a very significant crippling issue for this man. And notice verse 2. And they watched him. Well, good, they're watching Jesus, right? They're looking at him. They're keeping an eye on him. Well, no. They watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. Have you ever been at a church with a spiritual bloodhound? an ecclesiastical bloodhound, the kind of person who gets the slightest little sniff that something might be off and immediately it's, oh! There's a hobby horse here or some kind of thing here and the moment someone strays off course in that, they're on them. That was the Pharisees. They watched him. They watched him. What were they watching him for? That they might accuse him. Now, this says something about their hardened hearts. The first thing that they missed was the man in need. There was a man there that was deformed. He was in great need, and he was in their synagogue. We're not talking about someone halfway across the world that they'd never seen or never thought about before. This was a man in their church. And what is their response? Well, a a normal person might say, This guy might get healed today. I'm going to watch Jesus because I know he's got power to heal. And and I feel for this poor brother. I can't wait to see Jesus heal him. Not them. 
they weren't watching so they, that, that out of compassion. They were watching out of suspicion. They were waiting, focused, to see whether they could bring an accusation. Now this tells us something about hardened hearts. Hard hearts are insensitive to God's will and to man's need. That's the central, one of the central characteristics of someone with a hard heart. They are insensitive to what God's opinion is on a subject, or, or perhaps, and they are insensitive to what man needs. Here was a man with a clear and obvious need, and they couldn't care less. In fact, some commentators suggest that the Pharisees may have planted him there. They may have intentionally brought him there because they wanted to test Jesus. They wanted, if you will, to lure him in to a trap of healing him so they could accuse him. They had no human compassion. But not only that, why were they looking to accuse Jesus? Well, we go ahead to the end of the gospel record, and when the Pharisees delivered up Jesus to be crucified, along with the chief rulers, Scripture tells us why they did. They did it out of envy. Now, envy is a powerful, powerful negative force in our lives. And at the root of this envy in their hearts was self-centeredness, selfishness. They were the gatekeepers. They were the religious separated ones. And here comes Jesus, a new person, and look at how popular he's getting. Look at how much, how much divine work he is performing. People are following him. They're listening to him. They're not listening to the Pharisees. They are not respecting the Pharisees like they are Jesus. And immediately, because their self-interest is threatened, their self-worth is threatened, now they have an adversary, an enemy that they're opposing. Do you know this is also characteristic of hardened hearts? The hardness of heart is of those who are insensitive to God's will or man's need because they are frankly selfish. Because they are, they are concerned more about their self-interest than the interest of God and others. This was the Pharisees. They were envious. But not only that, how did they justify their behavior? How did they justify this accusation? Well, what would they accuse him of? Accuse him of healing on the Sabbath day. Now you say, why would it be a problem to heal on the Sabbath day? Well, you need to go 2,000 years ago to understand the Jewish rules concerning the Sabbath. The Jews said, well, if the Pharisees said, well, if you can't do work, servile work, servant work on the Sabbath day, that has to apply to medical practice, right? A doctor. And what they said is doctors can't ordinarily practice on the Sabbath day. That would be work if you were trying to minister or care for someone. And so they had rules that would say, well, you can't exactly tell a, a, a woman who's going into labor, come back tomorrow, the clinic's closed. So in that case, the doctor could work on the Sabbath. That was a kind of necessity. Or if there was a severe emergency type illness, maybe the, the doctor could work on that day. But in their perspective, a guy with a withered hand on Saturday, the Sabbath, is going to have the same withered hand on Sunday, and so he can't come and get medical treatment. Now, do you see how ridiculous this is? It's ridiculous as Jesus exposes in exactly how he healed the man. 
If you were to fast forward to the end of the story, notice at verse 5, Jesus says to the man, stretch forth your hand. And the man stretches forth his hand and it is healed immediately. In other words, Jesus didn't go over and do some manipulation of his hand and perform some diagnosis and do... Jesus spoke to him and he healed. There's no Sabbath law against speaking, is there? They, they couldn't get outside of their own box. Oh, if Jesus is healing people, he's doing medical. He's doing medical work. No, he's not. He's bringing divine healing power with a word. But they couldn't step outside their box. In other, in other words, their position was unreasonable and it was inflexible. But they couldn't get out of that box. Why? Because they were selfish. And why were they selfish? What was triggering it? Because they saw someone who was more popular than they were. Or they were offended. They were irritated in some way. And they could not step outside it. In fact, Jesus exposes the root of this. Do you see in verse number four of their unreasonable position when he says, he saith unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? What is he saying? He seems to be making this point. I have power to heal this man and therefore I can do good. Is it good to heal a man who has a withered hand and restore him to health? Of course it's good. Jesus said, I have that power. And what he seems to be saying is, if I refrain from doing this good act on the Sabbath, I'm doing evil. Because if you have power to do something good and you don't do it, what is it? It's evil. It's sin. To him that knows to do good and does it not, the Bible says, to him it is sin. So for Jesus to refuse what God wanted him to do on the Sabbath day and what he had power to do would have been him doing evil. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful to save life? Jesus says, I have the power to do this. Or is it the power or is it lawful to kill? He said, I would in essence be killing this man. I would be bringing about his destruction if I refuse to do on the Sabbath what is in my power and is in God's will to do. And notice what their response is. Notice it with me in verse four. But they held their peace. What does that mean? They were silent. Why were they silent? Because they had nothing to say. What are they gonna say? Did that cause them to change their position, even though their position had been exposed as unreasonable? No. It hardened it. In essence, they're saying, we don't care. Now, I want to pause there for just a moment, because this same kind of hardness of heart is something that we so easily can fall into in in insensitivity toward the needs of those around us, rooted in our own selfishness and stubbornness and rationalized or justified by an unreasonable position? You say, when would that come into play? Well, are you married? Are you married? How many times do we as spouses act toward each other in ways that are rationalized by an unreasonable position 
or in our other family or friend relationships, we act in ways that are insensitive to the needs of our spouse or our family or our friend. And we justify it by saying, well, she did that to me. She said that to me. And if truly you were to go before an an honest, impartial observer, they would say, you're being unreasonable. That's an inflexible position. But you say, I don't care. I don't care. What is it? It's a hardened heart. Or how many times do we fall into a hardened heart before God when God shines his light on our heart and says, you're doing wrong in this area. You know that doesn't please me. And we say, but God, I just want to. I want to. And so I'm going to do it. Then you're going to forgive me. But I'm going to do it. What is it? It's a hard heart. It's a heart that is justifying its own self-centered, stubborn behavior based on its self-interest and on an unreasonable or inflexible position. And we all have to beware because every day our heart can be hardening in these various ways. I saw this Recently, uh, when we were in Florida recently, we were on the beach and we were playing football with Lars and Sam, two eight-year-olds, right? So they're running and playing football with each other and, and, and me and a couple of my brothers-in-law were, were playing catch with them and throwing it to them. And we were probably a good 20 yards from any person. We weren't close to anybody. They were being eight-year-old boys, but they weren't being like crazy loud or everything, anything. And a woman who was on the beach um, sunning herself, got up, and, and she was, uh, you know, an older woman, and she came over, and she was so angry. Don't you know that you're not supposed to be here on this side of the beach? You're supposed to be over there. Don't you see that sign? And she basically just completely railed, get out of here. I mean, that was effectively the, the effect of what she was saying. And I was thinking, how miserable does she have to be to see two eight-year-old boys having fun playing football on the beach and say, this is an outrage that must be stopped. But what happens? A hardened heart. You see marriages that for years and for decades have have allowed hearts to harden and the marriage itself becomes like cement, rock hard, nothing soft, nothing genuine, nothing compassionate or loving about it. What happened? Hard hearts that continued on in insensitivity to the needs of their spouse, justified by their own self-interest and an unreasonable or inflexible position. This is the character of hard hearts in our relationships with others and in our relationship with God. But notice, secondly, what I'm going to call the confrontation of these hard hearts. How does Jesus respond to these hard hearts? Will you notice with me? Verse 5 says, in response, when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Let me ask you this before we jump in. Does your theology allow for a Jesus that is angry? I don't know that you often, you and I often think about a Jesus that is angry. We think about a Jesus that is loving and it is compassionate. Oh, he is. 
We think about a Jesus that is gracious and always willing to forgive, and he is. But do we think about a Jesus that was angry? What would that look like? Can you imagine Jesus looking round on them, looking round? It's like he's scanning the room at all of these people that are saying, are you going to heal this guy? We want to accuse you. And can you imagine, what did he look like? Did his nostrils flare? Did his jawline set? Did his eyes flash? I mean, just, just picture that Jesus who is looking at these men with hardened hearts and he is angry. Now, this may be a little bit discordant. It, it may feel strange for us to think about this because we rightly recognize that anger is almost always wrong for us. In fact, listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. We have been taught rightly anger is, is wrong for us. And so it may feel odd to say Jesus got angry. Did he sin? No, he didn't. What's different between Jesus' anger and our anger? And let me hasten to say that if you want to destroy your marriage, your family, your relationships, you'll give in to anger. It's destructive. Well, what's different about this anger? Well, what's different about our anger? Why do we get angry? Do you know so often we get angry because of our own hardened hearts? Our anger so often is uncontrolled. Like when someone explodes and in that moment they have no control over themselves. They literally cannot control what they're saying and feeling and thinking and doing. And so in that moment, there's this explosion of anger. And the Bible tells us that explosion is always wrong. It is always wrong. It is what the Bible calls wrath. To lose one's temper is always out of control with what God intends, which is for us to be controlled by the Spirit. We are to be controlled by him, not controlled by our own wrath or anger. Why, why do we tend to get angry? We tend to get angry because our own self-interest has been imposed upon. Someone cuts us off in traffic and we get angry. Why? Because we wanted to be farther ahead than we were. We had to slow down. Someone says something unkind to us and my feelings are hurt. So because my self-interest has been imposed upon, I respond in anger. I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm irritated. And then the third part of my anger is that often I am unwilling to relent. I am not only angry, but then I am stubborn about it. I don't have a heart of compassion toward the person who has done me wrong. I have a heart of bitterness. In fact, sometimes we identify anger as being only what explodes like a volcano. Hot lava flowing everywhere. But that's actually not the only symptom of anger. The other symptom of anger is the glacier. Have you ever seen the silent treatment in your relationship or your marriage? Do you know that's anger? It's not the anger that is flowing like lava, but it's the anger that's freezing like ice. And it's just as angry and it's just as wrong. You say, well, I have reason to be angry. I've been hurt. And so therefore I need to show it by freezing this relationship. No, friend, that's anger. 
it is still the same kind of selfish, self-centered interest that is unwilling to relent. It's anger. Now, that kind of anger is always wrong. It's never right. But what is different about Jesus' anger here? What is different about the way he responds? Well, here's the first point. It was not uncontrolled. It was entirely under control. Do you see? It was him responding in a way that was under God's control. Uh, One of the other examples that we sometimes think of of Jesus getting angry, do you remember when he went into the temple and started clearing out the tables of the, the money changers, the people who were there? And you can imagine Jesus throwing over tables and driving people out, and you think of some guy who's just flown off the handle. He's lost it. Do you know the Bible makes clear that wasn't the case? And do you know how it does it? It says that when Jesus, before Jesus went into the temple, he took a scourge. He doesn't say he took it. He made it. He fashioned it. Do you know how you make a scourge? By braiding it. Now, it takes me a really long time to make a braid. I can tell you. I can tell you. If you ever see one of my girls with a braid at church, it wasn't me. Okay? I'm just telling you, it wasn't me. It was Tabitha. Tabitha's pretty quick at making braids, but do you know, it still takes a while to make a braid a braid of a scourge, of a whip. Jesus didn't fly off the handle. He was very controlled and he was very decided when he went in there and said, I'm about God's business and this needs to change. So Jesus' anger was entirely under control. Do you know what also Jesus' anger was? It was directed at God's interest, not his. Why do we get angry? Because someone imposed on my self-interest. Why did Jesus get angry? Because someone imposed on God's. And Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. I am the king who has come to make things right in how these people are relating to God. In fact, this wonderful example of this, how did Jesus respond when his own self-interest was imposed? When they hung him on a cross and mocked him and beat him and 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 treated him terribly. He hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He never got mad when he was mistreated. His anger was when his father was mistreated. And the simple point is this. There is a moral indignation that all of us should feel when the name of God is mistreated, when God's will is not being performed And that's very different from the anger that we so often feel, the irritation, the resentment, when my interests are being imposed upon. May we see very clearly that difference. But not only that, the last thing about Jesus, our anger, we tend to be very unwilling to relent. We tend to become bitter and stubborn very easily. Jesus, what was Jesus motivated by? Notice what it says here. He looked on them with anger being what? Being grieved, grieved. What was motivating the anger of Jesus was sorrow, was sadness. He looked on these people that he came to save and he saw the door of their hearts slamming shut. Their insensitivity toward the will of God and the need of those around them. And his heart was broken and out of love, he says, this is not supposed to be like this. This is wrong. I wonder if you've ever 
experience the anger that comes out of love, not selfishness. You see, as I, I as a, a father of five young children, if there came a person to do harm to my children and I did not respond with moral indignation that was a kind of righteous anger, I would not love my children. I could not love my children if I did not respond in the right opposition, the steadfast opposition to what would harm those that I love. And hear Jesus out of, heart of, out of a heart of love and compassion and grace toward these people that he had made. He looks on their hardness of heart, closing the door to the work of God, and he is righteously, morally angry at what has been done. Friends, I just pray for all of us. Would we have the grace of God to see our own selfish anger and say, let that be put away entirely. It will destroy us. It will destroy everything we touch. But may in the same hand we grow in the love of Christ so much that we will be morally and righteously indignant at that which defiles the name of God and destroys the lives of those around us. There is a clear difference, and may we follow the example of Christ here. Well, what happens in response to Jesus' anger? Jesus looks on them. He's angry. He's grieved. He has a heart of love toward them and toward those in the synagogue. And what does he do? He says to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Immediate healing. Can you imagine seeing a shriveled hand become an operating functional hand before your very eyes? You say, well, surely if the Pharisees saw that, they would have changed their minds. They would have changed their hearts. They would have said, okay, we give in, Jesus. You're right. Did they? Verse 6, and the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Let's look finally not just at the character of hard hearts, not just at the confrontation of hard hearts, but finally at the closing of hard hearts. The closing of hard hearts. This is a remarkable example because from this point forward, there was no negotiation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees counted Jesus as their sworn enemy and they ultimately drove him to the cross. Their hard hearts became closed. And there was no reopening. In fact, you see this very interestingly in something we might miss. The Bible tells us, Mark wants us to understand that they took counsel with who? The Herodians. Do you know who the Herodians were? The Herodians were a kind of political party or a group that supported Herod Antipas. Who was Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas was the ruler, the vassal king over that area, Galilee, under Rome under Roman rule. So they were people who were looking at Herod Antipas and supporting him as the Roman puppet king. In other words, they were deferring to Rome. Do you know who hated Rome? The Pharisees. Do you know who could not have been more ideologically opposed to one another? The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were the secularists. They were the ones who it said didn't didn't believe necessarily even in a Messiah. 
They were fine with with Herod Antipas as their king. And here the Pharisees who are longing for a Messiah, the religious ones, the separated ones, they come together in their common hatred, in their common enmity to the king, King Jesus, out of their own hardened hearts. Now, this shows us something that is very sobering And I hope that God, by his spirit, communicates this to all of us this morning. The sobering fact is this. Our hardened hearts can lead us to places and alliances and actions that we could never dream of. If you were to see someone with a hardened heart who has blown apart their own spiritual life or their own marriage or their own family relationships based on anger and self-centeredness, they, they will be doing things that if you were to bring them back in time 10 years before and say, 10 years from now, you're going to do this, they would say, not a chance. Not one chance in the world, I would never do that. If you had brought the Pharisees three years before and said, someone's going to come and he's going to be a teacher and you're going to align yourself with the Herodians and you're going to work with them. They said, not a chance. No way on earth would we do this. What do hardened hearts do? They lead to us being closed, to us being rock hard. And what I want to see here is the progression of these hardened hearts. The progression of them is what stands out to me from this passage. Go back to Mark chapter 2. Actually, go back, actually, if you have your Bibles open with me, to Mark 2 to see this really sobering progression. Mark chapter 2, in the, in the first 12 verses, it's the story in the synagogue where the man is let down on the pallet right in front of Jesus through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees respond, they say, who can forgive sins but God only? And as we've said, what Jesus is saying, yeah, who can? Who do you think I am? That's the idea. Jesus says, which is it easier? Is it easier to say your sins be forgiven, what can't be verified externally? Or is it easier to say, get up and walk, which can be verified externally? It's easier to say something that can't be verified. But Jesus said, just so you know that I have authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he got up and walked. Do you know what that was? It was grace. It was Jesus shining light right on the hearts of these Pharisees and saying, don't you know who I am? I'm the king who has authority to forgive sins. And at that moment, they could have responded to God's grace and they could have said, yes, you are. What would you have us to do? But they didn't. They closed the door. They said, we're not going to accept that. Go ahead to verse number 13. Jesus calls, in this from verse 13 to 17, Jesus calls Levi to repentance and salvation. He goes to a house full of open and notorious sinners, and he's teaching them, and he's calling them to repentance. And the Pharisees say, who do you think you are going to hang out with sinners like this? And Jesus says, don't you understand what I came to do? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. This is why I'm here. I am a savior who pursues sinners. And what was that? It was grace. It was shining light on these hearts of the Pharisees and saying, and if you'll admit that you're a sinner and you don't even keep God's moral law, I'll save you too. 
And at that moment, they had grace to soften their hearts and say, yes, Jesus, I want my sins to be forgiven too. I want to repent. And what did they do? They closed the door and their heart got a little harder. Go ahead to verse number 18 through verse number 22. The disciples of the Pharisees, the Pharisees are fasting. Fasting twice a week and they come to Jesus' disciples. Hey, why, why aren't you all fasting? And notice how Jesus responds. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can they have this time of fasting and mourning when they should be having a time of joy? What was Jesus saying to them? It was grace. He was saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who came to give joy into your life. I'm the one who came not to patch up your shirt, but to give you a new one. I'm the one who came to pour new wine into new religious wineskins in your life. I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. It was grace. It was light being shined on these hearts. And how did they respond? In that moment, instead of opening the door and saying, Jesus, yes, we want your new wineskins. We want your new wine. They said, nope. And they slammed the door. And their heart got harder. And then look at verse 23 through 28. They accused Jesus one more time of violating the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't you understand that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? I'm the one who's at the center of all your religious observances. I came to fulfill them in myself. I am the one that you've been waiting for. Look at all these examples of grace that he has poured out on them. I am the king who has authority to forgive sins. I'm the savior who came to pursue sinners. I'm the bridegroom who came to give you new life and joy. And I'm the Lord at the center of all your religious ritual and observance. And in response to all these repeated invitations of grace, these people say no. And what happened? Their heart became harder and harder and harder and harder until it could not get soft again. They had been closed in their hardened hearts. You know, the word that's used here for hardness, the hardness of their hearts in the Greek literally means to be covered over with a callus. Now, I don't have a lot of calluses. I don't think attorneys and pastors are known very well for their calluses. But some of you have worked in the fields or you've worked in manual labor and you know what a callus is. How does a callus form? A callus forms because your hand meets an, or, or an, something else, some other piece of skin meets a friction, a surface that repeatedly rubs over and over against it. And as it rubs over and over against that piece of skin, the, the skin puts a new layer on of skin over it, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one, until your calloused skin cannot feel anything because there are so many layers of skin in the way. And what an amazing picture for these Pharisees and frankly, friends, for some of us, the truth comes to us and we say, oh, don't go there. We close the door and a layer of callus forms. And God in his grace and mercy comes and reveals it again. And we say, oh no, God, not this time, maybe later. And another layer of callus forms until eventually there are so many layers 
that we don't feel a thing anymore. You know, some of us husbands were like that when we had a new baby. We woke up the first time or two or three or five or ten with the baby crying, but we couldn't satisfy the need of the baby, so we just went back to sleep. You know who wakes up every time the baby cries? Mom, because she's listening. She's softened to the need of that baby. I made one mistake once. I'll never make it again. I woke up once in the morning, and I rolled over, and I said to Tabitha, that was a pretty good night, wasn't it? And she shot me one look, and I said, oh, boy, I'll never ask that question again. <laughs> never going there again. The right question is, honey, how did last night go? That's the right question, especially if you slept very soundly with a newborn baby. What's the point? The point is not that the baby stops crying. It's that the husband stops hearing. And you know, friends, some of us have, God has been speaking to our hearts in certain areas for a while now. He's been tapping at areas of sin in our life and says, give that up, give it up. You know it doesn't please me. You know it's wrong. And you know sometimes how we respond? We say, it's okay, he'll forgive me. I'll do it once more. I'll keep on giving into it. He'll forgive me. Friends, that's not the point. He will forgive you. The problem is that at some point, you'll stop asking him to forgive you. You'll stop asking. Why? Because there will have been too many calluses on your heart and you won't feel God speaking to you anymore. You won't hear him. And that, friends, is the most sobering and fearful position of all. We all can be like a Pharisee with hard hearts. We can have hard hearts in our relationship with God we can have hard hearts in our relationship with our spouse and our children and our family and our church. All that needs to happen is when we, based on our own self-interest, on our own selfish desires, become hardened to the needs of others and to the will of God based on our own unreasonable and inflexible position. For some of us, that may be in accepting Jesus Christ for the first time. It may be in bowing our knee and repenting and saying, I need to get right with God. I need to have my sins forgiven. And friends, if that's you this morning, I plead that you wouldn't walk out of this church until your heart is softened before him and you say, I'm, I'm willing to bow and be saved. But maybe there's an area of your relationships or maybe there's an area of spiritual life this morning where God has clearly spoken to you once again. He said that needs to change. I plead with you this morning. Don't put another callus on. Don't put another layer on. Remember what scripture says. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we see this and are sobered because we can have hard hearts. Perhaps we have seen in areas of our life when we're hardened in our hearts right now, there have been some calluses that we've allowed to come in over God's conviction in areas that need to be made right. Father, thank you for your graciousness that you keep on speaking, that you keep on inviting and drawing us 
Father, may we not be like these Pharisees who ultimately not only were their hearts hardened, but their minds were closed and there was no turning back. May we remain sensitive to your gracious invitations for fellowship and relationship and new life with you. Let's pause for a moment. Are there any areas where hardness of heart has begun to settle in? Any areas where there are calluses that need to be stripped away? Are there any areas where you need to repent? Are there any relationships that need to be softened in your life? Hardened marriages, hardened family relationships, and you know that a callus is formed. Maybe we need to go to God today and say, God, give me grace to be softened in these relationships. Give me grace to be a peacemaker, to bring a thaw on what has turned to ice. Let's allow the Spirit of God to speak to us this morning.